My name is Johnny Levy. I'm one of the teaching elders here at Aletheia, and uh, I will be working out of the ESV Bible, uh, in case you want to know what version I'm using. Um, It's one of the great joys of my life to stand up here and to uh, minister to you through the Word of God. We were praying a little bit just before we walked in, like, like just talking about, just checking in with why we do this. You know, like, why do we do this? Why am I up here? Why does the worship team come up? You know, why do we have the brothers in the back that are handling the tech and, you know, doing things that I could only imagine, right? Like, why is all that happening? And the reason is we believe that people can be impacted and changed by this God that we worship we believe that God is supernatural. Amen. We believe that this is more than just a gathering of a bunch of human bodies on some chairs, but that this is actually a place where the Lord who created the universe is pleased to dwell with us. Um, and so in light of that, you know, there's times when, uh, when Paul refers to the preaching of the gospel as foolishness, right? Because it feels like foolishness sometimes. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to stand up here I'm going to talk for an hour. What's that really going to do? Because I know how hard it is for me to hold something in my mind from hearing it one time and then go out into, in, into life and have an impact. And yet, I can tell you that many times in my life, I have been impacted and changed just by God's word, right? And so I want to join you, or I want you to join me this morning in just believing together that this is more than just Sunday morning checking off a box on the list. Like, this is more than that. This is our opportunity to each of us individually receive and engage with what the Holy Spirit of God would seek to do in our lives because we need him, don't we? Like, man, it's ugly out there, is it not? (laughs) Like, it's gross out there, right? Like, it'll make you cry, and it probably does many of us, right? And so let's remember, like, we need to be here. And I'm talking to you like like I'm not an armchair quarterback. Like, you know, like I need this word that I'm preaching to you today just as much as you need it. Amen? Amen. All right. So so last week, Joel preached on uh, the Battle of the Kings, which was amazing. And then he also preached on the the covenant uh, between Abraham and the Lord where uh, you know, he, he divided up the animals and, you know, was expecting that he was going to walk between it and God was going to walk between it. And then God puts him to sleep and then walks through basically saying that God was taking on the responsibility for the entire covenant, right? And, and that Abraham's part was to, was to just sit there and be asleep, right? Now, that's not to say that there wasn't obedience required of him, but God was setting a precedent in this moment, an incredible precedent that we see then thematically leading all the way up to the cross. And I thought Joel did an excellent job of elucidating that for everybody. And that is a word if you want to question me. Elucidate is a word. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so the thesis of where we're heading today, just a couple things. One thing we're going to cover is that this life is a mess and has always been. Amen. Get that on your coffee mug. This life is a mess and has always been. God's ways are not our ways. We're going to delve into that. God only gives us one perfect hero. The rest of our heroes are terribly flawed, right? So, uh, so if you just think about it like this, like cancel culture right now. Like if you, if 
you mess up, right, if, somebody, if you find out that somebody's said something really bad in their past or done something bad in their past, then it's like their entire influence has to be unraveled, right? Because, you know, we can't have that influence on us of, 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 of bad people. Now, if we apply that to the Bible, everybody would be disqualified except Jesus, right? Because there's just so much sin and darkness. It's so real, right? The scripture is so real. So that's, that's a piece of what we're going to look at. The nature of faith we're going to talk about, which you really can't talk about Abraham without talking about the nature of faith. Yes, that we're called to believe in the face of insurmountable contradiction, right? That is so much the flavor and the taste of what faith actually is, is to believe in the face of insurmountable contradiction. And then I might get into this a little bit um, or it just might be a, uh, uh, what, I, what I thought was an interesting thought. Faith covers the distance between what you can know and what you must know, right? Faith covers the distance between what you can know and what you must know. There's a lot of things that we can know and that we can, we can uh, experience and prove um, through, uh, through objective testing. Then there's a lot, but, that, but, but if, you, if, you're, if you're living just based on what you can know through observation, you wouldn't be able to function in life because life requires so much more from you in terms of how you make your decisions. And so faith bridges that gap. Some people put their faith in science. Some people put their faith in humanity. Some people put their faith in chance. And some of us put our faith in the living God. Amen. Right? So let's get over there to, uh, so we're in Genesis chapter 16. So I'm going to have you start to turn there. Now, I usually start with some umbrella scriptures, right? So there's some scriptures that I'm going to use to help us interpret the text. And so I'm going to read through those first. You don't need to turn to these. You guys go ahead and get ready with, uh, with Genesis chapter 16. Um, umbrella text number one, Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. So right now we're in the middle of this account of, of Abraham's life. But I'm going to fast forward you to what's said about him later, right? Because that will help us cast light on what we're reading about him now. So this is what's testified of him. You know, this is what God says about him through Paul in the scriptures. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. I want you to say, did not weaken in faith. Did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, so this is the testimony that we get of what God thinks of Abraham after the story's all said and done, right? Now you're gonna wonder as we go into this text how God came to that conclusion about Abraham. And there's a beautiful mystery in there for us to partake of and nibble on a little bit. Just a little bit. All right, next umbrella text. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Again, don't turn there. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by what? Faith. Not by what? Sight. Amen. Preach a whole sermon on that. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is an incredibly important text, right? 
we see through a glass darkly on our best day, we're seeing a dim perspective on reality, which means we don't get to achieve complete knowledge in this life. Amen? Amen. So we've each got to navigate this reality with incomplete knowledge. That is the deal. That is what life is. That's the name of the sermon. The sermon's called This is Life, right? The deal is you're sent off into life with incomplete knowledge, and you are expected to navigate in the world that way. Now, is that fair? Doesn't sound fair, does it? But that's the deal. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So Abraham met God face-to-face. Here's where where I'm taking that. Abraham met God face-to-face multiple times, right? Like, who here has met God face-to-face? Don't raise your hand. But (laughs) he met God face-to-face multiple times. That's the reality that Abraham got to deal with. And he was still just stumbling around, seeing dimly, right? Seeing dimly with limited information just like the rest of us. Like that's Abraham's testimony and everybody's testimony who's come since. Now, if we can understand that, then maybe we can have a little compassion for these people, right? These heroes of ours that are actually, that have feet of clay, right? These heroes of ours that do things that we think we would never do, right? Because you would. And you do. Now to Genesis 16, since we've gotten all that, uh, all that elucidation out the way. My wife's shaking her head. I better stop. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, I love this. Okay. So Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. There's a lot here. In fact, probably most of Uh, a lot of what I'm going to cover today is in this actual part of the passage. So the time frame that we're dealing with, first of all, when God calls Abraham, he's 75 years old. When God first gives him the promise, his call was like around age 70, but around age 75 was when God said, I'm, you know, Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to just give you all these offspring, like the start, like I'm going to, I'm going to hook you up. You're going to be prolific, right? Like I promise. And Abram's like, but my wife is barren though. God's like, I'm going to do this thing, right? So God tells him, 75 when it happens. Um, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. Do the math for me. How many years of waiting did he do? 25 years. Who here can imagine waiting for God to do something that he said he was going to do for 25 years? Okay, some can't imagine. Amen, right? Like, Sometimes God uses time in ways that we do not understand, doesn't he? 25 years he waited. So that can give you maybe some perspective on the events that are about to happen in this section, right? So 75 years, God gives him the message, or, or he's 75 years old. Everything that's happening in this passage with Hagar and Ishmael and all that is happening when he's 85, right? So 85, 86 is when this is happening. Um. So there's, 
so, so, so we're 10 years in when this kind of detour happens. And we'll go into it a little bit more. But I want you to picture, before we get into that, Sarah's pain, right? I want you to picture what was in Sarah's heart when she goes to her husband. Because her husband's been telling her for 10 years, right? For 10 years he's been telling her, God told me we're going to have a baby. Like God told me. Our offspring's going to be like the sand of the, of the desert and the stars in the sky. Like, God told me. And here's his wife, and she's saying, still barren, right? Two years, three years, four years, five years, still barren, still no babies, right? So what would drive her then to say all of a sudden 10 years in, you know what? The Lord's kept me from having children, right? Apparently, I'm not a part of this equation, is what she's saying, right? Apparently God's gonna bless you, but it's not gonna be through me. And so she says, I've got an idea. Here's my maidservant. Maybe she'll be able to give you this thing that you've been so pumped about for all these years, right? Can you picture the pain of waiting? The pain of thinking that the promise doesn't apply to you, right? And that somehow you're going to have to get out of the way so that God can get done what he wants to get done because you're holding this man back from getting what God's promised him. That's what I see here, right, as she, as she says that. Uh, and now Abram, Abram agrees. Now, the question is, how do we get here, right? Like, how did we get here from, from, from la, you know, last week in the last chapter and probably not too, too long before this, right? Like, as far as the events are concerned, probably not too far before this was when, when uh, Abram has that experience with God and God walks through the, uh, the severed animals and God promises him, you're going to have all this and, and this is going to come out of you. And, and then Abram, Abram just very simply says, I believe you, right? So how do we get, here, get from there to here so quickly? Now, I think a misconception, the, when I came to this text, I was going to call this part... Um, uh, I, I forget what I was going to call it. Something like improvisation. I was, I was basically going to focus on the fact like, hey, you know, don't jump the gun on God, right? Don't jump the gun on him. Like when he tells you something, you know, don't be like Abraham and try to do it yourself. But here's the issue with that. God didn't tell him how it was going to be done. God gave him very limited information. All he said was, your, your offspring are going to, I'm going to give you a seed, and that seed is going to spread out all over the earth, right? Like, that's all God told him. He didn't tell him how it was going to be done. Now, based on the testimony that we have of Abraham, that he never wavered in his faith, understand? I don't believe that this was an action done out of, out of, out of unbelief. I think that Abraham thought this was the way that God was going to fulfill the promise. You know, because again, we're talking about limited information to work with and just kind of stumbling around and doing the best that you can to figure it out, which causes me to have sympathy for the man, right? Because God didn't make it super clear. God could have been like, man, I'm going to give you a son through your wife. And then Abraham would not have done this thing. Does that make sense? Now, am I accusing God of error? Not at all. What I'm saying is, his ways are not our ways. And he, he gave Abram the information that he wanted to give him, and then things played out from there. Moving on to the next section. So when she knew she was pregnant, and we're talking about Hagar, she began to despise her mistress. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Oh, my gosh. What husband here wants to hear your wife say that? Oh, honey, may the Lord judge between you and me, bro. It's on for you now, right? Like this man is getting, you know, he, he's in trouble. He's in trouble. I'm just going to say it, right? She's not happy with him. Now, again, it was her idea. But Abram was real, was real cool with going along with it. So we've got problems on all sides of the equation here, right? As is most often the case in marital strife. Amen? May the Lord judge between you and me. And then Abram says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Right? Like, handle it. I'm not going to get in your way. Do what you got to do. So he gives her a license to go and do what she's going to do next, which is then Sarah mistreated Hagar to the point that she fled from her, right? Now, I don't know about y'all, but this reminds me of Jerry Springer back in the days. Like, I, used to, I used to watch Jerry Springer. Now, why did anybody watch Jerry Springer? Because of the stimulating conversation? You wanted to see people run up from their seat and swing on somebody. That's why, that's why you watch Jerry Springer, right? Um, just, just to kind of point out to you, like the drama has been there since day one, right? Like the drama that we experience in this life, like when you look at your life and you feel like, dang, man, this is crazier than a movie, right? When you look at, when you look at what's happening in your family and you say, dang, man, like this is like a Jerry Springer show, right? You're in very good company because all of history, it's been this way because that's how sinful the world is. That's what sin does to us, right? It looks like this, right? You have a good idea, but that, that idea comes from the flesh. You go and implement your idea, and then it turns out to be the opposite of what you were hoping it was going to give you, right? Like what she was trying to do was to get God's promise to happen. And what she ended up doing, and Abraham ended up doing, was, was create ruckus for themselves and drama and pain, Right? That, that spilled out over affecting other people beyond just them. And then they both abdicate responsibility, right? Like, you know, it, it, Sarah's like, it's not my responsibility. Like, you're responsible. You're responsible. And Abram's like, well, you handle it. So no responsibility being taken. Now, can Abraham still be our hero? Can Sarah still be our hero? Why? Can they? I think yes, but why? Just like me. God doesn't give us heroes that aren't just like us. Even Jesus became a man. He was a perfect man, but he was the only one. So if you're going to have heroes, you're going to have any heroes if your hero's got to be perfect. And I could go a long way on that. I could talk about, you know, people in the faith like Martin Luther, who, you know, did amazing things and are part of the reason we're here in this room right now and hated Jews. Right? Does that disqualify everything that he did? No, it just means he was a man like you and like me. 
Keep on moving. So the angel of the Lord, so here's, here's, here's God's response to Abraham's mess and Sarah's mess. And I want you to think about the mercy. I want you to think about God walking between the rows of, of severed flesh and saying, I got you, Abraham. And then Abraham goes and, and does some, some boneheaded thing like this. And what does God do? He shows up. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where you, have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So God shows up. He gives Hagar this very difficult pill to swallow, right? Do we understand that? Do we understand? Do we understand when God says to, uh, to Hagar, um, who's running away from, a, from, from her slave master, who's treating her poorly, and God says, yeah, go back. Do we understand that, God? Is that God culturally acceptable? But he's God, isn't he? He knows what he's doing, and obviously he doesn't think like a man. So you can just get that out of your head right now, right? God doesn't think like a man. Sends her back, but then he also gives her a blessing. But I'm, I'm going to give you offspring too numerous to count, right? And then he continues on. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Man, you see the mixture of mercy and judgment. Like, it just, it's, it, it's, a, it's stunning, it's astounding to see this, right? Like God said, he, he comes to this woman who's in the middle of this drama, and, and a part of it's her own doing, right? Like she was looking upon her, her, her mistress with contempt, right? She was doing this. She, she, then she ends up out in the desert by herself, and, and God takes interest, and he says, no, I'm, I'm here, and I heard your misery. Like, I heard you. I heard you, daughter, Right? What mercy and what gentleness. Oh, but by the way, your son is going to be a wild donkey of a person, right? Which, you know, probably not the funnest thing for a mother to hear, <laughs> right? But it's like God, is, God walks this line between showing so much mercy, but then he also holds us accountable for sin. And, 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 and it's almost like you can't even fathom how he does it. Because he says both things in the same breath. Right? Because this thing that Sarah and Abraham has done has consequences to it. She gave this name, but, but let me tell you the impact he had on this woman, right? She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I want you to say that. Say, you are the God who sees me sees me, right? What did she need to know? She needed to know that God saw her, and he did. For she, said, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. 
it is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So we have this, this crazy moment, right, where God shows up. And again, keep in mind, she runs off. One, one of the many consequences of this poor judgment that, he, that Abraham and Sarah made together. And yet God's here cleaning it up, right? God's here intervening. God's here guiding things towards his purpose. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael, right? So again, 11 years after the promise. Now what comes next, which I'm going to get into next week, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little preview. 13 years from this point, Isaac comes, right? The actual child of promise comes 13 years from this point. I can pretty much guarantee you that they thought at this time that we're reading that they thought Ishmael was that son, right? Because here's his son. Who else could God be talking about? His wife is barren, but now he has a son. And you can tell by the way he responds when God comes back to him and says, <laughs> you know, he comes back to him in the next chapter and he says, all right, so your wife... <laughs> is going to have a son. Your wife is going to conceive and have a son. So now God gives the detail, right? Your wife's going to, going to have a son. And Abram says, and you can just picture, right, the, the, the grief in his heart when he says, oh, Lord, that, let it be Ishmael. Let it be Ishmael, right? And God says, no. That wasn't my doing, Right? But he, but he also says, but I will bless him, though. You know, so we have this, I mean, I mean it's just, like, what is this, right? Like, like, who is like this God? So now coming to close, right, coming to, coming to close, you know, what gives me comfort about this passage, and really a lot of what we're dealing with in the Old Testament, is the fact that it looks like a Jerry Springer show, right? So that when my life looks like a Jerry Springer show, I can understand that I'm in good company, right? Because there's something about this thing called life. You know, what's this? This is life. That's the name of the servant. This is life. It's a mess. The sooner that we can come to terms with that, the better, right? Like, your life's not going to be perfect. You're going to have pain and you're going to have suffering. And you're going to have a God who's with you in it. And you're going to have a God who's going to walk with you through it. And you're going to have a God who is even able to take your mistakes and bring glory to his name through those things. Like that's how powerful God is. And he shows that here, right? Like he shows that here. You know, it, what you might find strange is he doesn't even rebuke Abraham and Sarah for this. He never rebukes them for it. Why? Does it have something to do with God putting that man to sleep and saying, I'm going to walk through both halves of this thing while you sleep over there? Could it have something to do with that, right? Could it have something to do with God saying, this man, Abraham, believed me and I accounted that to him for righteousness. I didn't take his actions and account his actions to him for righteousness. I accounted his faith to him for righteousness. Amen? That's a significant thing, isn't it? Does that mean that Abraham didn't suffer consequences for that? He did. 
but it didn't break fellowship with the Lord, did it? Did he still come back and say, hey, you're not disqualified from the promise? He didn't miss a beat, right? Does that give you some hope? I hope it gives you some hope because it gives me some hope, right? When I look at my life and I say, it's a mess, Jesus. It's a mess. Have you left me? Or are you still here? And let me tell you, we're, we're going to even get even more like, I want to bathe in that reality for a minute, right? Because we need that one. Um, I'm going to take you right back to uh, Romans 4, where it says, you know, the, the testimony of Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Like when we get to fast forward, to how God, like when God gives his testimony of Abraham, it doesn't say anything about Hagar. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like it doesn't say anything about his cowardice when he was afraid to die and he, he kind of just sent his wife off to these other men, right? He doesn't say anything about that. We would, right? Like we look at Abraham and we think, well, that makes me, you know, you kind of suck, dude. <laughs> right? Like that's what we think. We look at David uh, with Bathsheba, and it's like, well, why did God pick him? He's a stinking adulterer that kills people, right? And God says, oh, no, that's a man after my own heart. And it makes us maybe a little bit upset with God for that, right? Like, that's not fair. Man, this whole thing isn't fair. If it was fair, you'd be in hell. It's not fair, right? It's grace. It's God looking at an Abraham who's a coward and a, and a man with poor judgment, but who, who believes God. And God's saying, no, I'm going to take that belief and I'm going to make you righteous. No, you're righteous. Let me give you this testimony, you know, hundreds of years later about what I thought of you, which is, man, he was a faithful servant. When Abraham probably couldn't have said that about himself at the time, right? When David probably couldn't have said that about himself at the time. How does that apply to you? in your moments of weakness? How does that apply to you in your moments of failure? How does that apply to you when you feel like you're just not adding up and you're not the awesome Christian you're supposed to be? Oh, man, join the club. Man, don't think I'm awesome. You just come to my house, hang out. You know, I'll show you some awesome, but I'll show you some not awesome too, right? Because God doesn't, I, I'm not here to be your hero. Does that make sense? Because it's all grace. It's all grace. And if any of us are called righteous, it's not because we're righteous. It's because we have a loving father who has been pleased to call us righteous. Can I get an amen on that? So here's what we know. A, God did not give Abraham the whole picture because God is God and he, he gives, he's like the wind. You're not going to figure him out because your brain is too small. And if you need to be able to put God in the box of your little brain in order to follow him, then you're not going to be a Christian for very long, right? Because God is, what's the word, Elia? He's incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible. That's part of what makes God God. Now, we also know Abraham was faithful and he believed God. We know that. We also know Abraham and Sarah lived imperfectly and made mistakes. Sound like anybody else you know. God was faithful to them in their mistakes. 
because of his covenant. God saw them differently than we see them, where we can get on our high horse and say, man, y'all, y'all really blew it. And, 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 and the God of the universe says, that man was faithful. And he even has some things to say about Sarah too. He, he, he calls Sarah a paragon of submission. That's what he calls Sarah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it too. <laughs> you have some hope that God is going to say some things about you when your race is done that you wouldn't have even been able to say about yourself? You have some hope? Well, I guess I'm going to have the worship team come up. That went quick. (laughs) And I got more to say. So uh, so I'm going to bring this home. uh, I'm going to bring this home to us a little bit more. What was required of Abraham? So in the very first place, what was required of Abraham? As we get to see, like, over the span of 25 years, what, what's it like when God tells you something and then it takes 25 years for it to happen and you don't get more information really about how it's going to happen? Like what is required of you? Believe, right? What's required of us? To believe. That's what's required of us. Now we think what's required of us, and this is the flesh, right? We think, okay, God said this thing, I got to make it happen. I got to figure out how I'm going to make this happen. Now, the problem with that is God is the one. God's going to make it happen. Preach it. The the word says part of what sustained Abraham was that he knew that God was the one who raises the dead and calls the things that be not as though they were. Now, do you have the power to raise the dead or to call the things that be not as though they were? No, you do not, which means that God has already... is always already putting you in a circumstance that you're not strong enough to handle. That's his nature. That's the nature of what he does. So that you may be at the mercy of the living God. And so that you may experience his care for you. But guess what, y'all? Sometimes it takes 25 years. Sometimes it takes 40 years in the case of Moses. Right? 40 years wandering around as a shepherd before he saw that burning bush. Now the, now the thing is, does that bother you? Does that bother you when you read the Old Testament and God does something that seems not just counterintuitive but downright mean? Does that bother you when God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and then makes him wait 25 years? Does that bother you? Bothers me. You get bothered when you read the Old Testament? And so a quick, I'm going to take you really quickly to John chapter 6. I would suggest you read this actually, uh, John chapter 6. I'm going to save this. We're going to worship. So let me pray for us. I'm going to save this for the response time. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for all these people. I thank you, Lord God, that you are God alone and that our hope is in you, Father. Our hope is not in what we know. 
Our hope is not in what the flesh can come up with. Our hope is not in figuring out our way that we're going to somehow make your promises come true for us. But that truly, just like when you put Abraham to sleep and said, here's your contribution, Abraham, you go over there and sleep. And then you walked through on his behalf. What's required of us first, foremost and fundamentally is to believe and to recline and to trust in you because we can't do it. And so I pray, Father, if there is pride in this room of, of busting our head in the wall thinking we can do it and that's why we try constantly and that's why we strive and that's why we struggle and that's why we destroy ourselves, I pray that you would give blessed re- the miracle of blessed rest to that person, Father. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, use your word to commit surgery in the hearts of your people so that we may know that your hands are sufficient to hold us and to keep us and to fulfill the promises for us that we can't fulfill for ourselves and help us, Lord God, then to be able to wait in expectation that makes no sense. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so as we uh, head into response time, I'm gonna share a quick reflection with you on John chapter six that I was kind of heading, heading us towards prior to the break. So sometimes if you walk with the Lord long enough, I mean always, if you walk with the Lord long enough, he's not going to make sense to you, right? So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with, with, with the God who behaves in these ways throughout Scripture that are sometimes offensive to us, right? Anybody ever have those questions? How do we reconcile it? Uh, and so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you John six. So John six, you know Jesus is preaching. All these people have come. They've experienced the loaves and the the miracle of the loaves and the fish. They want more. They keep asking him for more. You know, like they they're there they're there because they really they really like this dude. They like this Jesus guy, right? He feeds them. And uh, and then they keep asking. And finally, Jesus is just like, you know what? You got to do. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Now, I don't know if we can understand how offensive that was of a thing of him to say to these people. I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of something equivalent, and I can't in our culture. Like, I don't know what the equivalent is. But he, he, he destroyed these people with what he was saying. Like, no, you got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then they start to protest. They start to protest. And he's like, no, 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 no. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in you. Right? Like, he doubles down, and he doubles down, and he doubles down. And you can just picture the disciples being like, we're finally here. We got all these people. Jesus, like, what are you doing? What are you doing saying, what are you doing saying these things that are going to be so harmful to the people? And, and then ultimately, these people get so offended with what he's saying that they all leave, right? Because Jesus literally, like, if you were even just evaluating Jesus biblically at the time on what he was saying, he would have been disqualified by what he was saying because he's saying, be a cannibal. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Like, like, he would have been disqualified if you would have just evaluated him biblically, and that's what these people did, right? 
to the point where there was literally no logical reason left for anybody to be following him. Because why would you follow a man who speaks blasphemy and heresy against the very sacred book that he claims to be preaching from? You with me? And then what does Jesus say? He says something really interesting. He says, I told you before that no one could follow me unless the Father bid him to come to me. He says that, Jim. Nobody's listening at that point, <laughs> right? And then they all go away, mass exodus. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, will you also go away? And the disciples say, where will we go? You know, Peter says, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. But let me tell you something. He didn't have, I don't think he had any other argument for why to be there. Do you understand? Like what argument could he have that would justify cannibalism? Do you understand? They, God, Jesus brought them to the place beyond knowledge, right? Like the only thing that kept these people with him was, was God's supernatural power to keep their feet in place. You understand what I'm saying to you? We have no hope but faith that his covenant keeps us. And so, yes, when we're, do you think, I don't understand everything I read in the Bible. Some of it offends me. Does that make me not a Christian? No, because I know that my human brain can't give me the full picture and that there's things that I don't understand, but I know that he has me. And even to the points where he could bring us to the place where I don't even know that anymore, and he still has me. That's how strong the hold is. And so I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage the people here. Man, we keep holding on to Jesus, right? And then we go out and we live our lives and we fumble around and we stumble and we make mistakes and we're not perfect. There hasn't been a, a, a perfect Christian except Jesus, right? So I encourage you, man, that as we dig into these texts, you know, as we wrestle, as we wrestle with our lives, as we wrestle with the nature of life, right? Like who here wrestles with the nature of life ever? And dang, why does it got to be like this, God? The only answer that I have for you is that when the smoke clears, right, and he asks you that question, will you also go away? That somehow you're going to be able to say, where else am I going to go? Right? Where else am I going to go? When God brings us to the point beyond knowledge, beyond reason, beyond sense, See, that's the faith of a child. That's a supernatural faith. God has not, does not let anybody be a Christian because they decided to be. Like, you're a Christian because God literally made you a born-again creature, right? Which means the emphasis for your growth and for your progression and all those things is on what he does for you and on your believing supernaturally that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he's going to do. Amen? Lord bless you. We'll continue to worship.